0: Now over to Pastor Steve.
1: So uh, if, you're, if you've been paying attention for the last week, we ha- entered into a series um, that was kind of awkward because I was trying to like do the cool thing and, and a lot of people, <laughs> I realized how carnal our church was because they were all like, "Uh, oh, Steve's going to unbutton his shirt. And, no, it was the Holy Spirit. And they were like, no, that was you. <laughs> My wife thought it was good, so take that. This series is, uh, this is the hero within. And hopefully you're catching up to the to the cool, like, Superman, uh, whatever, cartoony, I don't know what you call it. What do you call it? Theme. See, I'm a professional communicator. theme It's a big word. You have to concentrate. <laughs> and you can see on the inside of our, uh, our Clark Kent is the, the hero that is empowering this man, this woman, to live a life that is committed to truth, to justice. And to the ways of the kingdom. Which obviously has a lot to do with the series that we went through last year and a half. Uh, King and Kingdom is a series that's out there on the keys to the kingdom. I would encourage everyone to get one. I think we have enough. And not because I want you to hear my voice and think I'm the greatest preacher, but because that information is incredibly important to get into your life, especially as we go into... What are we trying to be heroes for? The Hollywood and the world want you to be heroes so you can get the chick. Or get the money. Or get the, the million Twitter followers. Or whatever. that They want you to do the thing. And a lot of people live their lives for that. They just want to do that one five minute super cool thing that makes everybody follow them. So then they can take advantage of their new hype. And the Lord doesn't—he uh, doesn't join in with the hype. He, he, that's just really—he's not really a hype kind of guy. Uh, he is always doing the things that relate to his love for mankind, his incessant flow of grace into people's lives. Grace is the divine empowerment of heaven, and he is always working for truth. Which is why there is such a war in our society today. Darkness is being exalted. Lies are being disseminated. And people are being carried away. I would unplug right here and talk about Ukraine and Russia. I'm not gonna do it. Uh, because who knows? YouTube, I'm on a, I'm on a suspension right now from Facebook because I told the truth. about some things and it, literally I posted the exact same thing that I posted to Facebook to three other social media accounts and had hundreds of people like hey that's a great truth Facebook three-day suspension that which is the world that we live in it truth is being suppressed and oppressed lies deception demonic activity is being exalted if you, if you want to know what side you should fall on to be on the side of truth, find out what all the rest of the world is saying and go the opposite. That's about where we're at. It's almost where we are in society. that's uh, not that, that simple, but it's almost there. It's almost that much upside down. That if you if everybody if all the all the people on all the social media sites they're saying hey this is great you should you should eat all the sugar you possibly can guess what sugar is a poison truth justice God is a God of justice one of the names of God is Judge and and some people are like I don't want justice no you do want justice you want justice. In fact, the word justice in the New Testament is related to the Greek word krino, and krino is where we get judge. Those of you that are, uh, that are real quick to launch off with half a verse at somebody because they tell you that you're doing something wrong, and so you quote half of John or, uh, Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 where Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. Because you don't want anybody telling you that the stupid stuff in your life is stupid? Because obviously you're way more smarter than the stupid stuff that people are pointing out. You shouldn't hit your thumb with a hammer. I'll do whatever I want. I know how to swing a hammer. Okay. You just keep on going. I don't know why my fingernail fell off. You know, I, don't, I don't. I can't figure it out either. <laughs> Judge not lest you be judged. And then the rest of those verses... Literally, Jesus teaches his people how to judge in righteousness instead of judging in carnality, which is what most people do. Most people say, hey, I don't like your hair. Therefore, you're stupid. I know you don't get that. I get that sometimes. (laughs) But we judge these natural things. And that is not where the Lord is going with his justice. His justice is going into the divine places of your life. So if a person is born again, what God is telling them is, you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been made clean, you have been made holy, you have been rebirthed in the image of God, why are you not living that way? Why are you broke? Why are you sick? Why are you oppressed? Why are you depressed? Why are you sad? Why are things in your life not lining up? You were created in my image to do divine things. God will come to you that way. That's called conviction. Which is another word for conviction is convincing. They're the same word in the Greek. God wants to convince you that you're righteous. If you believe you're righteous, your lifestyle will be righteous. If you believe you're a sinner, your lifestyle will be sin. It's a deep truth. Write this down. Sinners sin. Yep. I, I know. Like, so I'd say that to people, so I'd like What? I feel the spirit. <laughs> and and the thing about that is I hope I hope that this group gets that this that when you get upset because some unborn again person out there in the world in your life does some dumb thing and you get upset about it, you're the fool. They're just doing their nature. And if you get upset by that, then you have not risen to the higher level that you were created to rise You should be aware that sinners fail. Failures fail. Liars lie. Broken people try to break people. Hurt people try to hurt people. And if you're surprised by that, hopefully I'm taking the edge off of it right now. But righteous people do righteous things. And so God will oftentimes come to you and convince you of your righteousness. Convince you of your value. Man, I do this all the time where I'm talking to someone like, don't you know your value? Why would you let these things be in your life? You don't see your infinite value? You don't see how precious you are? You're a princess. Would princesses let other people talk to them that way? Let other people treat them that way? And especially with gals, I do this very often because uh, gals are very emotionally driven or relationally driven, and so sometimes they're willing to give up some of their value for relationship. They purchase relationship with their value. If you actually understood your value, us guys would pursue you because we would want that high value. But when you offer it for free... Why pursue? This is why you see a society filled with women who are being convinced to go pursue men. Okay. Uh, I better... Hey, hey, everybody loves Pastor D, right? Right? No, 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 no. I just didn't want anybody throwing knives and bullets and stuff. Woo, that did not go over. We'll we'll have to talk about that another time when you guys are ready for that. But you can tell what your value for yourself is based upon what you let other people do and how you let other people talk to you and how you let other people treat you. They treat you with the value that you have. And if you get upset about how other people are treating you, you would be way more wise to put your focus inward and say, why am I letting people treat me this way? Why am I of such little value to myself that I have shown people how to treat me? Sila. Justice is Jesus covered you, washed you, perfected you in his blood. And so it is just for God to defend your righteousness. It is unjust for the enemy or his minions to condemn you, to implicate you in any way. The word diablos in the Greek means the accuser. Amen. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, you don't have to go there, but there's a list of of things that are going on with the broken people in the body of Christ because he's talking to Christians. And he said one of the things that's going on is that there are women in there that are accusers of each other. And that word, when you look it up in the Greek, is literally Diablos. He's saying that there are gals that are under the influence of Diablos talking about each other. It's like roast pastor for lunch. Or did you... Did you see the way Ryan missed that note? Or, uh, you know, if my wife was really a really good wife, she'd do this and that and this and that. God, please send me a better woman. Send me a better person. Give me a better church. It, it is, there is an endless amount of accusations that get thrown about at people in our lives that we are literally called to love and to build up. To love, to build up, to encourage God. To tear down, implicate, complain, condemn, Diablos. Which one do you want to align with? It's already quiet in here. Justice is Jesus took all of the punishment for all of the sin for all of mankind. And so for anyone to condemn you, and this is a little bit off track, but you can this might help some of you, with the condemnation, shame, and guilt thing. Condemnation only comes from three sources. It comes from the law. And I know that'll mess with a bunch of people, because like, oh no, I love the Ten Commandments. Well, the Ten Commandments is condemning you. The law was never meant for a righteous person. First Timothy chapter 1 says that it was never meant for a righteous person. It was only meant for ungodly people. And it and it's important for ungodly people. It's good and righteous and just for ungodly people. If you don't have God, if you don't have God that wrote His law and His covenant in your heart, then you need someone to say, Thou shalt not kill. And if thou dost kill, we will kill thee back. You need to know that, that there's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth if you don't have Christ. If you do have Christ, you should never have ill will towards your brother, towards your sister, towards your neighbor. No matter what. So, without Christ, we need the law. But those that are in Christ, you should have the law of God written on your heart, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you fulfill those two, you don't need the law. You don't need 618 commandments. You don't need the Ten Commandments. You don't need them written and engraved in stone because they are going to be on the flesh, soft part of your heart. So, condemnation comes from the law, number one. The second place that condemnation comes from is the enemy and his people. And you probably know there are literal agents of Satan assigned to your life to come and condemn you. Tell you how terrible you are. Tell you all the mistakes that you made. Now the problem is some people think this is the Holy Spirit. They think the Holy Spirit's job is to follow you around and say, Oh, you missed it. Oh, you didn't think right. Oh, you said a bad word. Oh, you did a terrible thing. That is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not condemn you. That is either somebody else's voice, a voice of condemnation in the past, a messenger Satan sent. You want to understand the thorn in the flesh that Paul had? It wasn't sickness. It wasn't disease. He wasn't making an excuse for being sick. While he preached divine health. Give me a break. It, it was That was Paul saying that there was a messenger from Satan sent. Go read it. A messenger from Satan. A messenger from Diablos sent to buffet him. It was Satan's messenger. To condemn him. To shame him. To make him feel guilty. Specifically because God was exalting him with, the, uh, with great revelation. And so the enemy is like, hey, we'll, we'll mess with Paul because look at all this revelation. Look at all these books of the Bible that he's writing. Dang it. Let's do something. Send him a messenger. Tell him that he's terrible. Tell him that he killed Christians. How, how dare you write Scripture? You killed Christians. Nope. Not anymore. I've been born again. <laughs> Amen. I don't want to go into that. But condemnation comes from A, the law. B, Satan and his messengers. And then this last one's going to mess with everybody in the room. The third place, biblically, that condemnation comes from is your own heart. 1 John chapter 2 says, Beloved, if, our, if your heart condemn you, God is greater than your heart and knows all things. Which means your heart condemns you sometimes. <laughs> and I don't have time to get into all that. I probably shouldn't even have even opened up that Pandora's box. But there's a reality to it that you have to wash your conscience in the Word of God and in the blood of God so that your conscience doesn't come to you condemning you, but so that your conscience can come to you and encourage you and exhort you and say, we can do it. We can be heroes in this society, even in this broken society. Yeah, but I failed at this and I was terrible at this and this is how I grew up and I don't have these assets. And your conscience would say, no, we can do it. We've got Christ. And then you should say, that's right, on the inside I've been affirmed. Well, what if everybody on the outside doesn't affirm you? I've been affirmed on the inside, that's all I need. So it's justice for Jesus to come and say, you are not a sinner. You are not guilty. You are not condemnable. You have no shame in you. I took it. Now believe in me and believe in what I've done. Justice. Now, for those that reject Christ, justice. Justice has two faces. Justice is, if you're guilty, you get the punishment. Justice also is, if you're innocent, you get exonerated. So in Christ, we're innocent because of what He did for us. Folks that are out of Christ... Guilty. There's judgment, and there is justice that's going to be panned out. Now, I pray. I, I, I had this conversation with someone the other day. Obviously, we're, we're politically aware in this church. Is that a good word? We'll go with that. And uh, someone the other day was talking to me about a, one of these uh, demonically inspired political leaders, and they're like, you know... Uh, If this person doesn't change, they're going to die. And I'm like, yeah, that's an option. Because they will. God will get justice. His justice does not sleep. The wheels of justice turn slowly, but they turn surely. So these folks that are getting away with some of the things that you think they're getting away with, go read the Psalms. You know how many times David said, man, it's like the unjust are always getting away with stuff. And eventually, don't you know? (laughs) The Psalms... uh, didn't uh, the Psalms were preemptive of what God did? God brought justice to all those folks that were doing evil stuff. So God's working for justice. But this particular person said, "This person, they're so wicked, they're so demonic, they're doing all these terrible things in government. And you know, if they don't, if they don't get right, they're going to die." And I said, "That's an option. Or what about this? What if they have a radical encounter with the grace and the love and the goodness of God in the middle of midnight?" Jesus shows up in their bedroom. They have a radical love, new birth experience with Jesus in the middle, and they wake up at 8 a.m. and they do a press conference because they were evil when they went to bed, and now they're righteous. And they do a press conference, which actually means all the media shows up because they're wicked, and they think their wicked leaders are going to say wicked things. And so then this person has this press conference and says... I had a radical encounter with Jesus Christ last night, and I'm going to tell you all the wicked stuff that's been going on in your government for the last 30 years. Ready? (laughs) Number one, that guy, that guy, that guy, that guy, that guy. Now, wouldn't that be a whole lot better for us to go into a world that we desire? Would you have all these wicked people have these radical encounters with God and then come out and say, this is what's been going on. I confess, if you want to lock me up, that's fine. Jesus Christ has set me free. I can be free in a prison cell. I want that. I don't want people dying. I don't want evil people going to hell. And if you want that, you need to get your heart right. We want evil people to get born again. We want born again people to get more born again. Justice. And the kingdom way. What is the kingdom way? The kingdom way is to have a life that looks just like our king. Seeking first what he once done. He told us how to pray about that. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Revered, venerated, great value on the name. The word "name" in the Greek and in the Hebrew means uh, it, it's not it's not like a title. It's not like a little "hello, my name is Steve." It means honor, essence, authority, the intrinsic value of who you are. So when it says "honored is your name," it means honored is your authority, honored is your your essence. Honored is your uh, your nature. Honored is your character. And a lot of people don't understand they think like the name of God is just like it's the greatest name. There's a lot of people that use the name of God in vain all the time. Even people in here, I know I'll look up here so nobody looks at me sideways. It's not about using his name in vain. Even though I would encourage you to not do that. It's about living your life that makes His nature, His character, His essence, His honor, and His authority in your life in vain. Do you know how many Christians that is? There's a lot of people that are living their lives in vanity. Vanity means inutility. It means fruitlessness. It means not having the end results that God wants. There is a lot of vanity in Christianity. And it's... uh, An orthodox Hebrew, an orthodox uh, Jewish person will tell you the worst sin that you can commit is to take the Lord's name in vain. It's to live your life in vanity when you call yourself one of His. If it's not producing fruit... I, uh, I really believe that these things that come to me are from Jesus, but I also know, like, man, if I get off on this, it's going to take a move of God to get me back. But I'll do this real quick. In Jesus' name. Ready, go. Uh, Let me synopsize some of these arguments that are out there that are just, that are politically just charged. Like, there is, all kinds of vitriol in some of these languages, or in some of these uh, debates. Uh, homosexuality, transgenderism, um, ju- just all of the, the... The enemy's plan is to depopulate the earth. So to convince people to live lifestyles that create death, or stop fruitfulness... Like homosexuality, there is no fruit. There cannot God's not like, well, I can't believe you do that. That's so terrible. my heart. Is... no, it's, you are living in vanity. There is no production. There is no possibility of fruit to that. I, if you think about it, all of the, the lifestyles that we have, these sedentary lifestyles filled with sugar. It is on purpose to create inutility or fruitlessness in our lives. You get sluggish and then you can't use your brain or use your thought life to to accomplish what God wants you to do. It's the same thing that this is why a bunch of you folks, not you, I'll talk to YouTube. This is why a bunch of you, when you're listening to me, sitting in a cushy chair, you want to fall asleep. It's because your lifestyles are not congruent to the kingdom. There's, it's not going to bring forth fruit. This is why kids, uh, children, and today they, they, we just let them run amok and do whatever they want. Just, when you throw a temper tantrum, just do it really slightly so that everybody doesn't stare at me while you're throwing your temper tantrum. It's inutility It will create fruitlessness in their lives. They will never go out to be a fruitful person. An effective citizen, an effective minister of the gospel in life. All of the, it's, God's not like picking on people. Like I don't like homosexuals, and I don't like liars, and I don't like. It's not like God's mad at. He's picking groups of people to be mad at. What he's doing is he's trying to create for humanity fruitfulness, blessing, opportunity for things to to get better and better and better. And the enemy is working in reverse. He's trying to kill, steal, destroy. He's trying to get depopulation to the earth. There are, you can watch videos of world leaders saying that we have 4 billion too many, uh, what they call us? Useless food, useless food consumers or something like that. Useless eaters. 4 billion too many useless eaters on the planet. And this particular world leader is in charge of all the vaccinations on the planet. That should make you really line up to go get your next vax, knowing that the guy that's creating and pushing all those vaccines wants four billion less people on the earth. I don't know about you, but I'd stay away from that needle. Amen. (laughs) A kingdom way is fruitfulness. It's fruitfulness of mind, fruitfulness of activities, fruitfulness of families. Why do you think that the enemy wants divorces and once 51% of every child born in America today is born fatherless? How is that child going to grow up and have a fruitful life other than a supernatural encounter by Father God? When they've been abandoned by the most important person in their life. And for all the moms in the room, I get it. We love you. You're amazing. But the most important person in a child's life is a father. 86% of children follow the faith of their father, not their mama. Their mom might pray him through it. Their grandma might pray him through it. But 86% of children follow the faith of their father. Why do you think the enemy has convinced people in America to go have kids out of wedlock with no fathers? We'll give you money. We'll give you uh, Medicaid, will give you uh, Social Security, we'll give you Welfare, we'll, we'll increase Your checks, the more kids you have, the more Checks will keep coming To create a broken and, and destitute Society If you think about this from God's perspective This isn't about like God just Gets mad at people because they don't Have the sex the way he wants Them to It all goes down into the root The core of humanity Itself us living the way that God intended for us to live? Fruitful. Blessing. Joy. Peace. Uh, gifts of the Spirit. Fruits of the Spirit. And radical encounters with God. Supernatural living. Us not living the way that God intended for humanity to live? Slavery. Brokenness. Death. Misery. Sorrow. Pain. Whatever you got. Behold, uh, Deuteronomy 30, 19 says, Behold, I place before you this day life, death, blessing, curses. Choose life. And it's this day. If you're in here and anything I said, you're like, Ugh, I probably need to deal with that. Deal with it. Deal with it right now. You can deal with anything. With the Holy Spirit, you can deal with anything in, in one millisecond. And you can choose. From now on, this is who I am. Don't say, from now on, this is what I do. Because then you're going to be, uh, you're going to be behavior modifying. The kingdom of God not, is not about modifying behavior. That's the world system. Read a self-help book. Be better at self. Self is your problem. You don't want self to get helped. You want self to get dead. (coughs) Dead self. The less self, (laughs) the more spirit is available. You don't want self-help. You want Christ help. The kingdom way is that way. That's what that book was about. This is the way. There's one way. There's one truth. There's one life. Jesus. If it ain't from him, it ain't way, it ain't truth, and it ain't life. And I know that makes me a really narrow guy, and and people are going to pick up. Oh, you just think everything, like, God has to do with something with everything. I know. I think he's the creator of the universe, that everything came out of him, that He's a he has a lot of control, that he's actually like this really big God kind of guy. I'm crazy, and my thought... Uh, systems, but that's fine. Me living in my craziness has given me a healthy body, a great marriage, fruitfulness in my life, a church that wants to be weird at ten-year anniversaries. Uh, there's there's it, it, if, if my way of life is wacko weird, and you th- that's fine. Leave me alone. I am having an incredible life. This is great. My father loves me. My wife loves me. My kids tolerate me most of the time, and even some weirdos in here love me. They- there's a, It's a better way, I promise you. I've done it both. I've been rich, I've been poor. Rich is better. I've been dead and I've been alive. <clears throat> alive is better. You don't have to take my word for it. Take the Scripture's word for it. Amen. In this uh, uh, next slide, or the first slide, back to the first slide, which was all the other verses on there. Yep, the ones that have the verses on it. The little bubbles that looked like a comic book that's the one way to go mary colossians one twenty seven, the bottom left uh verse yep <laughs> same thing
0: <laughs> no it's backwards
1: <laughs> no it's still bottom left uh God, if you see Colossians, this is Colossians 1.27, this is one of those verses that radically, radically affected my life, changed my, changed my way of thinking and my way of living. And, uh, this particular version, uh, at Mitchell actually came up to me last week, he said, hey, are we gonna be using this version of the Bible? And more? And I'm like, probably not. Cause he's like, if we do, we gotta, we gotta buy the whole version for like 30 bucks. So I'm like, nah, just do this one verse. Until I find another one. God did this, Colossians one twenty seven. God this did this because He wanted you Gentiles, and I've actually in my notes I I struck I struck through Gentiles and I put in parentheses beloved. He wants you beloved, not just beloved at beloved church, but you are His beloved, and Gentiles just means that you were not born of Jewish DNA, so. If you are born of Jewish DNA, you already by default were partakers of the promises. The Gentiles were not partakers of the promises because they were born outside of the covenant. So it's not just like God's doing great things for the Gentiles and he left all the Jews out. Like he switched. Like in the Old Testament, like, hey, everything's cool for the Jews, but all you Gentiles going to hell. And then he's like, okay, switch. All the Gentiles, we love you. Jews, you're going to hell. No. Now, they had promise through Abraham, we have promise now through Christ, and so he's made of one, many families, into one family of God now. And so it doesn't, he was writing this book to Gentile believers who probably struggled with the idea, like, this God? I thought this was the, the Jewish God, the Hebrew God. No, he's God. You are now part of that family. So you, beloved... God did this because he wanted you, beloved, to understand his wonderful and glorious mystery. And this word in the, in the Greek for mystery is mysterion. It's literally mystery. And, and I, want you to, I want you to understand that we've started to tap into this mystery, but we have not completely exposed all the mysteriousness to what God has for mankind. There is a lot of fun stuff out there. There's a lot of adventurous things that God has for. It. Anybody that comes up to you and says they got it all figured out, don't go to their church. <laughs> Just they ain't got it all figured out. I ain't got it all figured out. I do know that this part of the, ministry, the mystery I have figured out. The part that you need to have deep understanding and revelation of the mystery is Christ is in you. Christ is in you. Right now, as you sit there, Christ is in you. He's not gonna get in you. He not want to get in you. He didn't. He didn't come by on your salvation day and like flick a broken fingernail in you. So you got a little bit of. Christ. You don't, there's no. There's no junior version of Christ. There's no half version of Christ. You get Christ. The fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in you. It says in uh, Colossians 2, 8, 9, and 10, uh, that He is the fullness of God, and Christ lives in you. Now, this is people miss this because they're like, how in the world did Jesus get in me? Not Jesus. Christ. And I, for some of you, you're like, oh, some of you are like, oh, that's worse. <laughs> Jesus is human for the rest of eternity. He became man. And he will be human. It's a different kind of human. I'll admit that. Like, his humanity walks through walls and shows up wherever it wants to. But his humanity, that that physical... I don't even like that word. But that version of him is seated at the right hand of God. But he rele- he released the Christ part of him through the Spirit of God into all those that believe. So, in you is Christ. Not a Christ. Not some Christ. Christ. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells on the inside of you. The same spirit that Jesus used to raise the dead, to walk on water, to accomplish all of the mighty feats that Jesus, human, did under the supernatural power of Christ, is in you. Well, I don't feel like it. I don't care. I really don't. I am so far out of the feeling and, and emotion and, and this is how I think and this is what I believe and this is what I... That's fine. Do all that and live broken. But this is still the truth. The truth is Christ is in you. Well, I didn't, uh, I, I didn't feel it uh, come in or I, I don't wake up and get tingles. And uh, if, you, if you think that God can be boiled down to your goosebumps, you are a special kind of carnal. I'm just saying it. if you get goosebumps, God bless you, way to go. that's awesome. If you get duck bumps on your goosebumps, if you get if your hair stands up, if you see shekinah glory, if gold falls in your Bible, if you get a an electric shock that goes up and down your spine, if any of that stuff happens, awesome. And if it don't, awesome! Christ is still there. And I wonder sometimes, (laughs) I'm not God, praise Jesus. But here's the thing, like, there are times that I'm in a room, and people are kind of so self-involved and arrogant and prideful that they don't even know I'm in the room. And I wonder how many believers do that to Jesus all the time if i just if i just had some help here uh christ is there well if i just had if i just had the right medicine or if i just had the right word from somebody or if that one cool preacher would lay hands on me or christ is there yeah i know but but what there's something better there's something more it's not, good. Christ ain't good enough for you. You need Christ plus. It's quiet in here. <laughs> the wonderful and glorious mystery and the mystery is that Christ lives in you. And He is your hope of sharing in God's glory. The glory of God is the Greek word doxa, and it literally means of divine opinion. When Christ moved in, His opinion of you changed immediately. You used to be broken and flawed and human and of Satan, your father. And then Christ moved in, He has the exact same opinion of you as His other son, Jesus. Because you both have the same DNA. Divine nature awareness, which is Christ. That's how he can look at you differently than you look at you. That's how he can look at you differently than your neighbor looks at you. He sees you for who you really are. First Samuel chapter 16 verse something says that God does not look at us like man looks at us, but God looks at our heart. God is a spirit. 1 John, uh, not 1 John, John chapter uh, 14, I think is verse 17, says God is a spirit. We get that, that Father God is a spirit, but here's the thing. Because He's a spirit, He sees you in the spirit. So if in the spirit you're Christ, what does the Father see when He looks at you? Christ. Not what you see. Not what you think. If you see yourself the way the Father sees you, man, imagine what your life would be. Imagine what you'd do about those problems, those giants and those mountains in your life. The next verse, this is one of my favorite, uh, especially in this version in the NLT. This is one of the few verses I like in the NLT, which is Judges 6.12. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared... Uh, In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord was kind of like camouflage language for Jesus. So Jesus showed up and said, mighty hero. I'm praying for some folks to come to church next week and say, you know what happened last night? (laughs) A messenger showed up in my room and said, I was a mighty hero. I don't feel like a mighty hero. Well, then you need to feel the Christ part of you because the Christ part of you is a mighty hero. Why? Because the Lord's with you. Okay, if let's say I'm three foot tall and I'm incapable of defending myself or taking care of myself and, and Scott is six something, two, three, four, five, whatever. He's a big guy and he wants to come up and beat me up. Three foot Steve, who can't defend himself, is probably not going to fare well against Scott. But what if Jesus was standing with me? Scott would be wise to maybe not pick a fight. Not because of Steve, but because who's with me? Amen? Who's with you? How many people? Well, you know what the devil did to me this week? Did, 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 did he not know that Christ was with you? Or did you not know? He knew. So the fact that he was able to do anything to you means he knew something you didn't know. He knew Christ was with you and in you and still was able to sneak around and do stuff to you because you didn't recognize your value, your identity. I'm going to read a couple of... Uh, In Hebrews 6.12 it says that we should be followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So this is a, a, a declaration from God that we're supposed to follow heroes to be heroes. A hero is somebody who understands that they have a promise and by faith they obtain that promise. God's version of hero is nowhere near what man's version of hero is. So please, as we get deeper into this series, understand that I'm using the divine term hero, not the natural term. I'm not talking about comic books. I'm not talking about uh, movie Hollywood. I'm not talking about all those broken people. They can't even leave it alone. Like when I was a kid, Superman was an actual hero. Now he's this broke... I'm not even going to go there. I'm so irritated at what they did. Like, this, gener- <laughs> this generation in Hollywood, they break everything. They take all the good stuff and then make it version 2 and break it. <sighs> I'm going to write movies. <sighs> if you're going to complain about something you've got to do about it. So somebody in here needs to write movies because I, I want to complain and say I'm doing something about it. Joshua chapter 14. Some of you may understand the story of Joshua. Those of you that are going through the Bible in one year, you're probably getting close to Joshua. So, pretend you've already been there and say, yep, I read ahead, Pastor. I'm a... I'm a... I exceed. In Joshua chapter 14, Joshua took over for Moses. Moses went up the mountain, and basically God took him. They... They were so close in their friendship that uh, God... Just like uh, just like he did with Enoch. If you ever read the story of Enoch in uh, Genesis chapter 4, I think it is. Uh, Enoch walked with God 300 years. He was the original the way. He walked with God 300 years. And then it said, and God... Uh, then he was not. It's some of the... Funniest language in the scriptures. He walked with God 300 years, and then he was not. My my opinion, my version of that verse is, Enoch walked with God so closely, so intimately, that after 300 years, God looked at Enoch and said, hey, we're closer to my house than yours, you want to come over? And Enoch said, Yeah. It's the same thing with Moses. Moses went up the mountain, he was meeting with God, and he just never came down. Elijah did the same thing. You know, there's people in the Bible that never died. And there's so much weirdness about folks when you say, like, I, I'm believing that I'm not going to have to die. Oh, you, everybody has to die. Really? How many, how many people do you want me to name? Because I can name about five or six off the top of my head that never died. Well, you know, they went to be with God. Okay. I didn't say I want to stay here with you people. (laughs) I want to be with God. (laughs) Joshua chapter 14. Uh, If you remember in 12 and 13, this was when Moses picked some leaders to send them out to spy out the land, the promised land that they were all supposed to go into. And then they decided to be whiny for 40 years. But when they spied out the land, he sent 12 spies out to go look at the land that God had already given them. And when the 12 spies came back after 40 days of going through the land, spying it out, 10 of them gave an evil report. They were from CNN. The other two (laughs) gave a good report. The two that gave a good report were Joshua and Caleb. Joshua ends up taking the place of Moses. He learned how to be a hero from Moses, and so he was a hero. Heroes breed heroes. And Caleb became a hero as well. At that point, Caleb was about 40 years old when he went to spy out the land. And because he gave a good report, God gave him a promise that said, every person in this entire nation is going to die, except you and Joshua. And everybody died. And Caleb's 80 years old, living out his life, waiting for all these uh, CNN watchers to die off so that he could go and take the promised land. And at 85 years old, after everybody's dead, they're finally going into the promised land. Which, by the way, it was not God's decision for them to wander around for 40 years mucking up their lives. Man, please, please, please hear that. God does not want somebody to wander. Well, God has me in the valley. God has me in the wilderness. God has me. Stop it. God is a good God. He wants you to go take the promised land. He literally did everything He could to get them to go into the promised land. And then these ten guys came back and put them all into fear. And they spent 40 years in fear, whiny, complaining about what God didn't do for them instead of going into what God had already given them. And Joshua and Caleb decided to not be that way. They had a different spirit about them, the Scriptures say. Verse 6 in Joshua 14, Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephna, the Kenezite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me, Two. I was 40 years old when Moses the servant of the Lord sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Fear. One of the strongest things on this earth is fear. I I used to think the two strongest forces were love and hate. I was wrong. I literally was wrong. This is one of the things that I've learned in the last two years. I used to think it was love and hate. It's not. It is love and fear. I have watched humanity willingly go into slavery and prostitution for fear. I watched it with my own eyes the whole time, shaking my head like, there's no way. There's just no way this could be happening. Yep, it's happening. Fear. Fear. And if I would have been better with the Scriptures, I would have seen it. It's the number one statement in all of Scripture. Fear not. If, again, if I would have been paying attention, I would have known. It's the, it's the thing that God fights the strongest against. Fear. You should be like God. Fight against fear. I would say the majority of the decisions that the average Christian makes in their life has to do with fear. Well, I better do this because of the money. I better do this because of insurance. I better do this because I don't want to get sick. I better do this because I don't want this to happen. I better do this because I don't want this person to leave me. I better do this because I need to keep my job. I better do this because I want everybody to have likes on Facebook. Fear. The fear of man brings a snare. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet, I wholly followed the Lord with uh, the Lord my God. And Moses swore, on that day, <laughs> saying, "Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as He said, these 45 years." Since that time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I know. Broken. Feeble. Barely able to survive. You got a walker. False teeth. hairs falling out everywhere. You got to watch out. You never know what projectile thing will come out of his body. Verse 10, And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive. Who kept him alive? Do do you think the Lord kept him alive in like this vegetative state? How how much of the 85-year-olds that are existing on our planet now maybe are being kept alive, but maybe not by the power of God? Verse 11. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. Oh, boy. I know all the young people are like, that's right. When I'm 85, I'm going to be like that. Yeah. It takes a little bit more work. Uh, I can testify. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then. Because the Lord kept him. This isn't because he had a 24-hour fitness membership. Amen? The Lord kept him. Well, that was back then. That stuff doesn't happen today. God can't keep 85-year-olds today. I know, God got weaker. He's, he, he used to be way more God, and now He's less God. He used to be able to take care of 85-year-olds, and now, you know, I mean, he loses track of you when you're about 15. For war and for going and coming. Uh, there's only a few uh, veterans in here, and probably not very many veterans that have actually been in war. But it's not, it's not just like, are you healthy? If you're healthy to actually go to war... That's a whole different kind of health. <laughs> That's the kind of strong he was. He was war strong. Eighty-five year old man. You know, this guy. Don't you know some of those 40 year olds around him were like, don't mess with Caleb. Caleb, body slam You're sorry but in a minute. <laughs> Amen. So now give me This hill country, verse 12, of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim, mark that word, Anakim, were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me. What's going to make him successful? The The Lord's with him. What did we just read at the beginning? Because the Lord's with you. Oh, hero, rise up. The Lord's with you. It may be that the Lord is with me, and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. Anakim, giants. The sons of Anak. Anak was a giant. These are giants. This is Goliath's family. He said, I want that place. Don't you know all the 40-year-olds were like, yeah, Caleb, it's all yours, buddy. Giants, terrible. You know what Caleb was thinking? You know what? Giants make giant cities. Giants have giant houses. 10-foot ceilings, 12-foot ceilings, right? Giants have big things. They, they have big fruit. They have big crops. That's what giants have. And so Caleb's like, giants, smithers. I want their houses. I want their stuff. I want Because that's going to be the wealthiest, the most prosperous of all the land to take. I want that. And God's with me. Who cares how big the people are? It's my land. He promised it to me. He's kept me alive. I'm 85 and strong. I'm going to go up there and kick some giant butt. You know, we see a giant. Oh, I got this giant in my life. Oh, it's so terrible. You know what David, a 17-year-old kid, did with a giant? Threw a rock at him. And we're all like, oh, the giants in my life, they're so huge. Here's an 85-year-old guy who says, not only am I as strong as I was when I, at 45 years ago, but I'm going to climb a mountain, because that's where the giants are, and I'm going to kick giant tail. And we're like, but I'm, I'm, I'm just lowly little me. Here's another thing. You know, Caleb was not filled with Christ. He had no Christ. You have Christ. You know how many Christians talk about the mountain that's in their life? The giants that's in their life? And here's a guy who didn't have Christ, who looked at a mountain with giants, and said, Eh, that'll be a Tuesday. Y'all don't like this. Then Joshua blessed him <laughs> and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephna, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephna, the Kenazite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron, formerly, was Kiriath Arba. Arbob was the greatest man among the Anakin. So Hebron, who probably most of you have been peripheral Christian, you've probably heard the term Hebron. Hebron used to be the city of the big giant. That's literally what that word means. The cave, whatever, that word. It literally means the city of that giant. Hebron means that a place where people gather together. An intimate place. And so Caleb said, so the name of this city is named after that big giant fellow. The giant of the giants. The leader of the giants. I think we'll change the name. Whatever those strongholds are in your life, one of the things you need to do is you need to change the name of those strongholds and give them something that's more congruent with what Christ wants it to be in your life. Caleb changed the name of the giant town forever. It was never, ever in all of Scripture ever called Kirath Arba ever again. From then on, it was called Hebron. Because Caleb climbed a mountain and kicked giant tail, renamed the land after his conquest, renamed the land after the heroicism that he went and did just because God was with him. What can you do when God is in you? Judges 14. Uh, that's not right. Oh, yeah, it is. Judges 14. Then Samson, verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and his mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Ah! Lions and tigers and bears. Uh, there's, there's always one. Uh, the, you know the scriptures say that in James it says, "The enemy walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour." You know how many Christians I've heard me tell, "Oh, the devil's, just after me he's a lion. He's coming to devour me. So why are you on the menu? It says, whom he may devour. Who who put you on the menu? You, him. Take yourself off the menu. And if he's coming after you roaring, and you have Christ on the inside of you, which is different than Samson, who did not have Christ. Samson had long hair. (laughs) That's what he had. He had long hair. That was his strength. You don't believe me? Read the story. What did Samson have? Long hair. What do you have? Christ. Which one would you choose? I don't know. So, long-haired guy has a lion coming up to him. Roar! I'm Satan. I'm here to devour you. Ha! All I have is long hair. <laughs> yeah, this is why we need to write a movie, because I. I don't do a very good Samson. (laughs) Verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in
0: pieces.
1: (laughs) You know, let me translate this in the New Testament. You have the sword of the Spirit. You have the shield of faith. You have the Spirit of Christ on the inside of you. He had long hair. And he tore the lion in pieces. And it even tells you exactly how he did it, as one tears a young goat. Because that makes it a whole lot more understandable to all of us. Well, how did he do it? Well, like you do a goat. Oh, well. (laughs) That's how you do it. Yeah, that's how he did it. Now you can picture it, right? God bless the Bible. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Uh, I don't have time to get into why that's in there. Heroes inspire heroes. Heroes create vision for heroes. When you do heroic things and people see it, it inspires them to do heroic things. You know what the opposite of this is? You live in fear. Welcome to America, 2022. You inspire people to live in fear. Especially as a believer. Well, I'm a Christian and I have Christ, but the wise thing to do, we're not going to gather, we're going to wear a mask, we're just going to lay, because that's the wise thing. Is that what Christ would do? Probably. Jesus would totally wear a mask and, and hide from the virus. I've the, there, You can pull up multiple articles in Christianity where preachers, God bless them, I, don't, I use the preacher term loosely, have said that Jesus would wear a mask. And Jesus would socially distance. The same Jesus that commanded his disciples to go into leper colonies. Amen. Leper colonies. Leprosy was 100% communicable and 100% fatal. Yeah. And he commanded his disciples to go there. So I don't know what Bible some of these preachers are reading, but it ain't this one. Amen. And heroes breed heroes. Now let's say you're a young man, like ten. All the girls just pretend. You know, when you're a ten-year-old boy, you are all day long thinking you're someone else. You're Superman. You're, you're uh, Sylvester Stallone. You're some of your, yeah, all the, yeah, your He-Man, 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 like stand in front of the mirror, 10 years old, and you're like, and you can see it like, pow and you fly around the house, and your mom yells at you because you're doing it naked with a towel on around your neck. (laughs) You guys should pray for my mom. She had four boys. It was like a street fest. Like, we could imagine it, we could see it, we could see that hero on the inside of this. Yeah, it was like comic book, or it was, you know, it was Rambo in First Blood, or it was, you know, uh, uh, the other big guy in Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, it's, it's whoever the guy was, but you could vision yourself being that. So what if you're a 10-year-old boy uh, 3,500 years ago named David? What do you see yourself at? Boys don't change. The same thing happened with a 10-year-old then. He didn't have TV. He didn't have comic books. But what did he have? This. David knew the Scriptures. David knew Caleb. Climbed a mountain as an 85-year-old man. He knew it more than you did. I'll promise you, David sat out there meditating on the Scriptures, and envisioned Caleb, 85-year-old man, climbing a mountain and kicking giant tail. I'll guarantee you, he, David had a vision of Samson grabbing a lion by the jaws and tearing him apart as one tears apart a young goat. We, we see these stories like, oh, cool Bible, Yay! And then we go back to the movies. This was his movie. He's seen on the inside of him. If Caleb can do that at 85, what can I do? All he had was the Spirit of God. All he had was a promise. What can I do? If Samson can have a lion come against him, You know, I want you to think about this. This to David would be like us with the founding fathers. Joshua, Caleb was about 300 years before David. So David looks at that like we look at the founding fathers. And I think about it. I don't know how you do, but I think about George Washington. I think about him riding on his personal friend horse. And he comes back from battles where every single leader, every military leader in those battles, both sides are dead except him. And he's got holes in his coat and holes in his hat. I envision that. I can see George Washington in a boat going across the Delaware. We're going to... We're gonna get the. We're gonna rout the enemy. We're gonna rout these redcoats who are trying to tyrannize our land and steal from our, our, us our inheritance. I can see him on the boat. I can see him kneeling in the snow at Valley Forge and praying to God for divine providence. I can see him sitting in the Continental Congress and and ruling over that room and saying, "We're gonna build." A powerful government. And we're going to do it by the nature of God and through the Scriptures. And he was about 300 years ago. And then for David, 300 years ago was Caleb. About 100 years ago for David was Gideon. And if you've never read the story of Gideon, read the story. Gideon, total loser. God came and called him out in his identity. You great man of valor. You are a hero. And Gideon did that crazy thing where he actually believed it. And Gideon went and literally put the Philistines on the run for 40 years. One of the greatest judges in the book of Judges. That was 100 years before David. And then Samson, 50 years, just 50 years ago... This would be the same. This, there are people in this room. Uh, Pastor Craig was a Vietnam veteran. I can literally think about 50 years ago, Pastor Craig being out there fighting for freedom, fighting for liberty. I can envision Pastor Craig out there, the 50-year-ago version of Pastor Craig out there fighting for us. I can envision 50 years ago, the people that did the amazing things in our country just World War One and World War Two. World War Two, the greatest generation, men that went off to defend freedom and liberty from socialism and communism, and now we have a younger generation that are embracing socialism and communism to bring them into the nation that was defending liberty and freedom from socialism and communism. I can see these heroes. I can look at Saving Private Ryan on, and see the movie. I can see those heroes that did these amazing things. And just 50 years ago, you can go meet these people. Some of them are still alive today. You can shake their hands. I've met some of these incredible guys. I've heard their stories. I've had the honor of talking on the phone and being in the room with people. They shared these incredible stories. I'm like, man, you can do that. They did that. This is David, 10-year-old boy, thinking like, this is Gideon. He was, he was 100 years ago. This is Samson. Samson literally tore this lion apart just 50 years ago. I could probably go find his bones. Heroes breed heroes. Write the vision down. Make it plain. 1 Samuel 17, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Him who? Goliath. The giant that he's seen in the inside vision of him being Caleb. Just like I've been Superman. I've put the towel around my neck with the safety pin. And I've flown around the house. And I've jumped tall buildings in a single bound. And I've had bullets go pew. (laughs) And David has done the same thing. David, 10-year-old boy, standing out there tending his sheep has said, Caleb went and kicked... If you're going to beat a giant, this is how you do it. He envisioned it. He jumps off a rock, punches him in the face, whatever. He, He went through it over and over. He built on the inside of him a vision of a man doing what God called him to do no matter how big the foe and no matter how tall the mountain. And he says to the king, who was so big that King Saul stood head and shoulders above every single Hebrew. In other words, Saul was almost a giant. And so here's 17-year-old, ruddy little, five-foot-tall David, talking to the almost giant, telling him not to fear, because he's going to go deal with the real giant. Let not... Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Your servant. Look at the humility. And Saul said to David, verse 33, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight him, for you're but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. You can't do it. Anybody ever been told you can't? Anybody ever been told by a king who's almost a giant that you can't do it? Your people that have told you you can't, you probably already know. They don't really understand. David standing in front of somebody who really understands and still didn't believe him. And David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there and when came when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I, David, ten-year-old boy, imagining Samson, imagining Caleb, imagining Gideon, I went after him, chased the lion, chased the bear and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth and if he rose against me how dare him I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him where did he get that from Where does a little 10-year-old kid, 12-year-old kid, 15-year-old kid get the vision, get the idea to strike and kill a huge lion or a huge bear? Because he's seen himself as Samson. He's seen himself as Gideon. He's seen himself as a person doing what God needed him to do under the promises of God and expected that the Spirit of God was going to come into his situation just like he did for Caleb, just like he did for Gideon, just like he did for Samson. And Lord have mercy on the bear or the lion that didn't know that.
0: A pity to fool.
1: <laughs> Verse 36, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine, uncircumcised, has no promise with God. I do. This uncircumcised Philistine shall be like One of them. He already seen it. For he has defiled the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And whatever he said to Saul, the passion, the The conviction, the resolve that David spoke to Saul in, Saul said, go, and the Lord be with you. I don't think we realize what happened right here. Because all of the kingdom of Israel was dependent upon this one battle between a five foot tall, 17 year old kid and a giant man of war. And somehow Saul was so convinced by the grace and the power, and the conviction, and the resolve that was in David's heart, David's words, and David's story that Saul said, fine, I will wager the entire kingdom that you're going to accomplish what you said. David was convinced. Are you convinced that your giant or your mountain is going to fall at your feet? Psalm 16.3 the godly people in the land are my true heroes. David was a hero. And God takes pleasure in heroes. Second Samuel 21. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants. And they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. This is old David. 80 year old David. He was struggling. And Ishba Banab, one of the descendants of the giant, whose spear weighed three hundred shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. <laughs> he was wrong. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to him, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So here's the story. So David's going out to battle. 80-year-old guy, 60-year-old guy, he's going out to battle like he's supposed to be doing. And this giant sees David and remembers David. That's the one that killed Goliath, my brother. I'm going to get him back. He's a 60-year-old man. I'm still a giant. He doesn't look like he's very virile. I'm getting him. And what happened? One of David's men killed the giant. I want you to follow this. David was the tip of the spear. He killed a giant. And now one of David's men says, If my king can kill a giant, I can kill a giant. Heroes breed heroes. Verse 18, after this, there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. And then Sibathai, the Hushithite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giant. Well, now another guy kills another giant. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of that guy, the Beshlemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite. It's Goliath's twin brother, Goliath. The shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. They approximate 20 foot long. And there was war again at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Twenty-four in number. And he also was descendant of the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, David's nephew, struck him down. Now David's nephews are killing giants. These four were descendants of the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Are you seeing this? David goes and does this incredible thing. First he tries it out on a lion. Then he gets a bear. And then he goes and stands in front of the giant king, Saul. And he says, I can take out that giant like these guys did because I've already seen myself like Samson, like Gideon, like Caleb, who went and did all these incredible things. And then he does the incredible thing. He does a heroic thing. And there's a difference between a heroic thing and a hero. A heroic thing is a thing, a hero is a person, it's an identity. And David lived his life doing heroic things over and over. And not just heroic killing things. He was a psalmist. He he was a worshiper. He was a dancer. He was a lover sometimes too much. He, 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 he did all these incredible things. And he raised up people behind him. Generations of lion killers. Of bear killers. And of giant killers. Because heroes breed heroes. And then it became just like commonplace. For giants to fall at the hands of David's men. And I'd love to take you into parts of the Scripture where it said he had 300. David's 300 were these men that did these incredible things. They faced bears in, in the snow and dark in the caves and and they, and, uh, they, they faced a hundred men or a thousand men and they'd kill them until their hand cleaved to the sword. He raised a whole generation of heroes behind him because he did the heroic thing and envisioned himself as a hero. He envisioned what you are are, which is Christ in you, the mystery. Please rise. I'd like to bless you.